King Josiah was a remarkable boy. He probably didn't do much governing at age eight when he was made king, but he must have been well-tutored because by age 26, he was making waves and making history. He undertook this major campaign of reform and rebuilding, repairing the temple in Jerusalem, removing artifacts of Baal worship which had overtaken it and restoring it to the worship of Yahweh alone. A scroll or book of the law was found which emboldened Josiah even more to make things right, to repair not only the temple but to repair the broken relationship with Yahweh and repair the religious and social disorder that had come to define Judah. Josiah repented with loud weeping of the sins of his ancestors, and he set about making things right. Now, some Bible scholars do catch a whiff of maybe a little propaganda here, uh, as Josiah's far-reaching religious reform also just happened to benefit him politically. But just reading this story at face value... Here we have a powerful leader humbling himself, repenting of the sins of his ancestors, and taking every measure possible to repair the harm that was done. In other words, he was cleaning up a mess that others had made. And that makes a good Bible story because it's not hard to find ourselves in it somewhere. Here's where I went with it. I've been taught since childhood, probably like you, that if you make a mess, you clean it up. When I was a young boy trying to figure out how life works, that meant if I didn't make the mess, I didn't have to clean it up. Now that I'm an old boy trying to figure out how life works, I figured out my responsibilities are a little more complicated than that. Deciding what I'm responsible for is a bit tricky. And deciding what we collectively are responsible for is even trickier. Harmful attitudes Decisions and actions have been done by people who came long before me. Either they were my ancestors or they were a group that I am part of and identify with, um, like Americans, or more specifically, white Americans, or even more specifically, white male middle-class Americans in positions of influence and power. These decisions and actions might have been made long before I was born, or they might have been made now, but I have no say in them. I might even personally and actively oppose these decisions or actions. Trouble is, because I am part of the group that took these actions, I have at least a share of responsibility. I may have 
likely benefited economically, vocationally, socially, and in many other ways, even if I am strongly morally opposed to those actions. You folks, white privilege is real, regardless of how I feel about it. Systemic oppression is also real. Generational trauma is real. And we are not even that many generations removed from the horrors of enslaving other human beings and depriving human beings of basic human rights. The doctrine of discovery prov provided a theological basis to justify doing violence against indigenous Americans, and it's still alive today in some forms and has components that need to be dismantled, as some of you have been learning together here in recent weeks. So, how do we make things right? We know that the God we worship is a God who loves justice and righteousness. God's main mission is the restoration of shalom, making things right that have gone wrong, repairing what is broken. Now for King Josiah, it meant repairing the temple and restoring what had been lost or broken by his predecessors. What does repairing what is broken look like for us today? Given the harm done by people who've gone before us, where does my responsibility begin and end? Which messes should I help clean up and how? It's complicated, to put it mildly. We could spend not hours, but days and weeks and years working hard together to come to some satisfying answers to these huge and overwhelming problems. But sometimes the best thing that we can do is the one thing that's right in front of us. That with some shared wisdom and shared effort, we can make a difference in one place. So today I'm sharing this sermon time with two members of Parkview who did exactly that. Their stories are very different, but they are the same in this way. They joined a shared effort to make something right. That they individually weren't responsible for, but as part of a group, they saw and felt and owned their responsibility and decided to get involved in the work of reparation. So first we'll hear from Barb Faust and then from Phil Helmuth. Recently I learned that if you're from Minnesota, and I am, and you're over 30, and I am, you never learned about one of the most important events in Minnesota history, 
and I hadn't. It has been called one of the most violent ethnic conflicts in American history with repercussions that still reverberate. Dakota people had lived, roamed, and hunted on land where I grew up for thousands of years. But within the last two centuries, the pressures of European expansion eventually produced an explosion. What sparked the fury of the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862 were decades of broken promises, vast corruption throughout the Bureau of Indian Affairs, near starvation of, Na of the native Dakota population, and westward encroachment of white settlers who were told, once you cross the Mississippi, nobody lives there. When the brutal war was finally over, many hundreds were dead on both sides. Thousands of Dakota were forced from their homeland, scattered throughout the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Canada. A few Dakota remained in Minnesota, but most of those faced concentration camps, pressure to assimilate, and the opening of their land for white settlers including Mennonites, who arrived from Russia in the 1870s. By that time, the Dakota hunters were gone, so the land seemed open and free to claim. In 1930, my dad bought this farm, minus the red barn in the front, at the edge of Mountain Lake, Minnesota. He farmed there for 60 years, building a successful operation of turkeys, beef cattle, and acres of corn and soybeans. By 1990, my parents were ready to retire and were more than pleased to sell the house and surrounding acreage to Judy and Steve Harder, who had Mountain Lake roots. The Harders put the land to new use, turning it into a CSA organic garden. They built the red barn, added a large greenhouse, and opened a small cafe featuring the farm's produce. Eventually, the Harders were ready for retirement, too. They sold the house and yard, but wondered about the gardens they had tended. They learned about a native Dakota organization called Makoche Ikakupi, or Land Recovery, a project of reparative justice in Minnesota. Most Dakota still live in exile from Minnesota. The Makochi Ikekupi project seeks to bring some of their relatives home to reestablish their spiritual and physical relations in their homeland and ensure the existence of their people. Mindful of this tragic history, the Harders gave 20 acres of their property to Makochi Ikekupi. Then members of two Mountain Lake, Minnesota Mennonite congregations organized a supportive repair committee. Their goal was to raise enough money to purchase the barn, the greenhouse, and infrastructure. By chance, I got an email from a Mountain Lake friend wondering whether I knew and then describing what was happening on my family farm. There was no question 
I wanted to be part of this. I contacted my sisters, Lenore Waltner and Louise Kreider, and we made a joint contribution. Our children contributed. Cal Radikop, former Parkview member and originally from Mountain Lake, offered matching funds. By early this year, the goal was met, and the second Dakota settlement in Minnesota became a reality. It was named Hohoju Otonwi, which means Village of Vibrant Growth. To express appreciation, the Makochi Ikikupi group invited anyone who contributed to a wapada, or thank you ceremony, in late March. John and I decided we wanted to be there to represent my family. 25 Dakota adults and children hosted about 30 mountain lakers for a day-long event in the Red Barn. There were speeches in Dakota translated to English, singing, drumming, dancing, a Dakota prayer, a blessing and thanksgiving was given before a feast of bison stew, canoe harvested, harvested wild rice, large vegetable platter, fry bread, wild grape jelly, pear butter, medicinal tea. Then came the giveaway. Each of us was piled high with all sorts of practical gifts, mugs, tote bags, dish towels, wild rice, popcorn, hand-blended teas, bars of soap, socks, and kitchen tools. Finally, each couple was wrapped in a beautiful Pendleton blanket. Members of Makocha Ikakupi who were there included Wazi Yatawin, who is the executive director. Um, she has a PhD from his, in, in history from Cornell. Jim Rock, professor of chemistry, physics, and astronomy. Roxanne Bildebin Okwe Gould, professor of indigenous education. And Luke and Linda Black Elk, Black Elk with degrees in ethnobotany and ecology. They are the first residents of this village of vibrant growth. They hope the land will be a major food production site for the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota people in Minnesota. Over this past summer and fall, their mound home was built where they will live year round. It's the first of two or three more mound homes and families who will join them. When I first met Linda, I told her how very happy I was about the new village. I told her this was a farm where I grew up, where I had the best bag swing in town, where I raised 4-H calves and lambs, even convinced my dad to flood the garden for an ice skating rink. And I played in the summer cornfields. I explained that we did occasionally return to Mountain Lake and stayed with John's brother who farms nearby. She smiled and gave me a tearful hug. Oh no, she said, you can stay with us. You can play in our cornfields.
advocating for the forgotten poor. Go with me for a few moments to the four parishes of southwest Louisiana where 55% of the households in the region live below the poverty level or are the working poor who are unable to make ends meet. It is there where you will also see the devastating realities of climate change. In 2020, Southwest Louisiana was hit with four major weather events in less than nine months, from August 27th of 2020 to May 17th of 2021. Hurricane Laura was tied for the worst hurricane to hit the coast of Louisiana, even worse than Hurricane Katrina. Six weeks later, Hurricane Delta followed almost the same path and flooded the same homes and ripped off the tarps that had just been installed, followed by an ice and snow event and later 18 inches of rain in three hours in early 2021. FEMA declared 46,000 homes with moderate or severe damage. FEMA assistance was confusing and chaotic. Denied was a common response. Insurance claims were often denied, discounted, or delayed. After funds ran out for temporary housing, homeowners were forced to seek other shelters, become homeless, or return to their damaged homes. Many returned to their homes basically uninhabitable. Contractors in name only, who appeared to provide hope, offered to do repairs for whatever homeowners were awarded by FEMA or insurance companies, only to demand payment for the materials up front. But the would-be contractors never returned. Three of the largest local funders limited their collective assistance to no more than $10,000 per home, limiting the repairs to no more than a Band-Aid approach to the repairs when the average repair was more like $18,000 to $20,000 per home. There was no long-term recovery committee. There was nothing but chaos, no organization, no community plan for recovery. Hopelessness, despair, lack of trust, loss of everything, nowhere to turn, illness due to COVID and the conditions of their home and death were common themes that we heard from homeowners during the COVID non, during COVID nonprofits pulled out of the area since there was no clear plan for recovery. So where does one begin in the midst of chaos, mistrust, a sense of hopelessness, and so much devastation. MDS was invited into the area by Southern Mutual Help Association, who had no funding, no case managers, 
only connections to homeowners of need. It was there that I was appointed as the coordinator for Southwest Louisiana to lead the MDS response. So we began to build, rebuild relationships with homeowners of need, to listen to their stories without judgment. And after hearing their stories and frustrations and sense of hopelessness and the feeling of pain in my own lungs from the mold that was in each of the homes that we visited, I couldn't help but become an advocate. So after engaging case managers, I reached out to mayors, building permit offices, inspectors, to let them know we were in the area and expressed a desire to collaborate with them in the recovery effort. I reached out to any faith-based partner I could identify where we met roadblocks, we built bridges through pastors, other potential funders, police jurors, or as we would know them, county supervisors, state senators, governor's office, and FEMA. In each case, we built bridges of trust through transparency, collaboration, and integrity. We kept reaching out to anyone and everyone for their advice and partnership as advocates for those unable to recover on their own. We formed a coalition of Southwest Louisiana that became known as the Functional Long-Term Recovery Group. We continue to articulate to community leaders a vision for what can happen as we work collaboratively to build neighborhoods. So what over the past three years has or is happening? Number one, MDS along with partners said no to a Band-Aid approach to repairs. Secondly, we have repaired or rebuilt over 210 homes in Southwest Louisiana many to fortified standards, that is, able to withstand winds of 140 miles per hour. Driving through neighborhoods, homeowners today that we've helped flag us down to say thank you. And the scene you have here is what it looks, what hope looks like. Communication channels have opened between faith-based organizations, local, state, and federal agencies, recognizing that we are stronger together, advocating for the poor versus operating in our own individual silos. This year, mayors of rural communities are directly involved with MDS and our partners to rebuild homes in their villages. MDS is one of the last volunteer organizations still working in the region. In the past six months, three congregations, not Mennonite, have appointed MDS church contact persons to work directly with MDS in Southwest Louisiana. 
to continue to have boots on the ground responding to local needs among the poor. Mayor Nick Hunter of Lake Charles has provided the funding for an office and meeting center for faith-based organizations like MDS, recognizing that Southwest Louisiana is not able to recover from disasters without the help of faith-based uh, organizations. Just over one week ago, I met with representatives from an indigenous tribe in southern Louisiana, the Ponishen tribe, to determine how we might address some of the tribe's needs from Hurricane Ida. As a result of our collaborative efforts, advocacy and persistence, the names of Wallace and Mary, Indira, David, Brenda and Arthur, Shirley, Wilford, Bo, Joyce, Willa, Clarence, have not been forgotten even in the midst of all the noise that may have drowned out their cries for help. They are not alone. Thank you. I invite us all today to learn from King Josiah and Barb Vost and Phil Helmuth, and then look for opportunities that you might have to contribute to some work of repairing harm, whether small or large. If it seems overwhelming, and it very well may be, gather together some others and see what shared wisdom and shared effort can do. It will take deep listening and radical openness, openness of eyes, ears, and heart. Today, let's sing our confession together, Voices Together, number 732, in your hymnal or on the screen. 